Welcome back to class, everyone. This afternoon, we're going to focus on general principles of management for the patient with urinary incontinence or avoiding dysfunction. So let me just take a minute and explain to you how we're going to do this, how we're going to approach this content. There are a lot of management options that overlap. They're not unique to any one form of incontinence. And then there are treatment strategies that are very specific to a particular type of incontinence. So in this introductory section, we're going to talk about general principles. We're going to talk about interventions that might be applicable to many patients with incontinence. And then in subsequent discussions, we'll talk about strategies specific for individuals with stress incontinence, overactive bladder urge incontinence. You get the picture. Okay. So when we look at management, priority number one is always to correct reversible factors. Because as we said when we talked about reversible factors earlier, many times if we correct these, the patient gets much better before we even do anything else. And for some individuals, once we correct reversible factors, there's nothing left to treat. So this is where you always start treat your reversible factors. So we're gonna walk through these factors just like we did before. Some of this will sound redundant, that's okay. You can say, oh, I already know that. So remember that we use toileted as the mnemonic for reversible factors. So T is for thin atrophic vaginal urethral tissue. And we've already talked about how this can negatively impact on bladder control and on continence. Specifically, if you have normal estrogen levels, then you have very soft, sticky urethral walls that cling to each other because you have normal amounts of mucus production. And you also have that thick submucosal vascular cushion that transmits sphincter pressures to the urethral lumen. So normal levels of estrogen help protect you, help protect the female against urinary leakage. Postmenopausally, when estrogen levels fall, then you can get a thinned out vascular cushion and you can get urethral walls that are no longer soft and sticky. And so instead of clinging to each other, they're just slightly opposed, slightly open, just kind of looking at each other and that can permit leakage. In addition, when you have that kind of dry surface to the, to the urethral mucosa, remember that the urethral mucosa is continuous with the bladder neck and with the bladder. So when you have drying of the urethral mucosa, the urethral lining, it creates inflammation. That contributes to bladder irritability because they're neighbors. And so when you have thinning of the urethral lining, you also have thinning at the bladder neck and increased irritability. So postmenopausally, not only are women more likely to be dealing with stress incontinence, they're also more likely to complain of increased frequency and urgency and sometimes leakage. I had a good friend who also was a continence nurse and she said she had never really thought that much about this or really put that much stock into the role of estrogen until she hit menopause. And she's like, I couldn't get to the bathroom fast enough. And as soon as I corrected my atrophic urethritis, 
all my symptoms went away. So let's talk about how we make some of those symptoms go away. The recommendation is topical estrogen, not systemic. You want to treat the problem, and the problem is very localized. It's at the level of the vaginal and urethral mucosa. So you do not need to give systemic estrogen. You will get equally good results from topical estrogen, and you won't be dealing with the adverse effects that accompany systemic estrogen. So as long as there are no contraindications, and the major contraindications a history of breast cancer, as long as there's no contraindication, you can either prescribe topical estrogen if you're advanced practice, or you can work with the prescribing provider to get an order for topical estrogen. Now, how do we actually administer it? Well, you always follow manufacturer's guidelines, of course, but in general, you need to start with a loading dose. So typically what we do is we tell the patient, apply the topical estrogen, either the cream or the tablet daily for two to three weeks until the tissues become well estrogenized. Once the tissues are well estrogenized, you can back off to a maintenance dose, which is typically a cream or tablet twice a week. Or at that point, you could also switch them over to the S-ring. You know, the S-ring is a sustained release intravaginal estrogen ring that is inserted every three months by a healthcare professional. So if you have a female who comes in with problems with bladder control, and on assessment, you find that she has thin, dry, possibly inflamed, inflamed vaginal mucosa and hypertrophic urethral mucosa, your first intervention is to provide topical estrogen daily until you get the desired effects and then back off to a maintenance dose. Okay, so remember we're using toileted. So what does O stand for? O stands for obstruction, specifically from stool. So if you have someone who's chronically constipated, who has a lot of stool in the rectum or the rectosigmoid, that actually contributes to bladder irritability and to urge incontinence. And that's because remember that the rectosigmoid and the bladder and the urethra are essentially next door neighbors. So if the rectosigmoid is full of stool and taking up all the space in the pelvic cavity, it makes it very hard for the bladder to stretch and store. In addition, a full rectosigmoid can partially compress the urethra, which creates a degree of outlet obstruction, and that increases bladder irritability. Finally, if you have a patient who's completely impacted, then that impinges on the urethra and does create outlet obstruction and can contribute to retention. I worked in a continent center um, for a while where the physician always started with the bowel. Patients would come in, they would tell him all of these things about their bladder and he would say, what about your bowel? And they'd be like, nothing's wrong with my bowel, it's fine, why are you asking me that? And he would say, because my experience is that almost everyone who comes in with a bladder problem actually has a significant bowel problem. 
And even if they said, no, 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 I'm fine, that's not my problem, I want you to just focus on my bladder, he would say the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a clean out and we're going to make sure that retained stool is not contributing to your problem. And it was amazing the percentage of patients who came back and said, I didn't even think I had a problem with my bowel, but I'm so much better. So looking at management options, goal number one is to do a clean out and make sure that all retained stool is eliminated. So typically we use laxatives and enemas. A lot of times we'll tell the patient, whatever your usual laxative is, take that every night until you're passing mushy stool. If they are impacted, you're going to have to start bottom up, so you're going to have to start with enemas to clear out the impacted stool, and then you can do a laxatives to clear out the entire GI tract. Okay, so we've done that. We've cleared out the rectosigmoid. There's no retained stool. When I do my percussion, it's tympanic like it should be. If I do a rectal exam, there's no retained stool in the rectum. Now what? Now we want to put into place a program that maintains normal bowel function. So we would work with the patient to assure adequate fiber intake, adequate fluid intake. We would tell them monitor your bowel function, use laxatives as needed. But our goal is to get them to a point where their fiber intake and their fluid intake assures normal bowel function. Now we will discuss this whole issue in a lot more detail when we get to the section on bowel dysfunction. Okay, so now we're to I. Following our toileted mnemonic, I stands for infection, urinary tract infection. So we've talked a good bit about this. You know that when you have a bladder infection that the urethelium senses the pathogens in the urine and increases the level of signaling molecules to the brain so that you perceive marked urgency at low volumes. So these people come in with frequency, urgency, and sometimes painful urination. Frequency and urgency can precipitate urinary incontinence in somebody who's borderline. So let's say I have some degree of overactive bladder, but I have pretty much always make it to the bathroom. But now I have a urinary tract infection. And that can change things just enough that now in addition to having frequency and urgency, I'm having leakage. If I have a problem with mobility, so that normally I make it to the bathroom. Urinary tract infection couldn't push me over the edge. So the bottom line is, if you have no issues with incontinence, a urinary tract infection will cause you frequency and urgency and pain, but it will not make you incontinent. But if you're borderline, a urinary tract infection can cause incontinent episodes in addition to a lot of misery. Now the other thing that can happen is that in a patient who has any degree of pre-existing dementia, a urinary tract infection can cause a sudden and significant deterioration in cognitive status. So again, a patient who maybe was borderline continent becomes incontinent, or a patient who is being managed effectively on a toileting program 
now is leaking in between trips to the bathroom. So UTI can cause urgency and frequency alone, but no incontinence. In someone who's borderline, it can cause urgency, frequency, and leakage. In a patient with pre-existing dementia, it can cause new onset or worsening of functional incontinence. So you've heard this before, you're gonna keep hearing the same things. When it comes to urinary tract infection, remember the guidelines are, do not treat asymptomatic bacteriuria, but do treat symptomatic urinary tract infection with the appropriate antibiotic. And just in case you don't remember it from the last time we said it, here are the symptoms that you're watching for. And the patient has to have at least three of the five. Frequency, urgency, and dysuria, so that symptomatic complex. Fever and chills, cloudy malodorous urine, suprapubic or flank pain, and diminished cognitive or functional status in the elderly. So let's say I come in and I'm complaining of increased frequency and urgency. I don't complain of dysuria necessarily, but I have increased frequency and urgency. Okay, that's one. Have you had fever and chills? No, not really. Have you had any suprapubic or flank pain? Well, it's a little more tender than usual. I haven't had any absolute pain, so you've got kind of like, okay, well, that's sort of a yes. What about cognitive status, functional status? And the caregiver might say, yes, she's leaking a lot more than she was. She wasn't having all these problems even last week and she's more confused than she was. She was much more alert last week. Okay, so now I kind of have two and a half symptoms. I'm gonna check the urine. So if the urine's cloudy, if it's malodorous, if there are bacteria in the urine, now I have three of my five symptoms and I'm going to treat. Now, I officially stands for infection. But remember the potential impact of bladder irritants. Remember that some substances act as bladder irritants in susceptible individuals and can increase frequency, can increase urgency, can precipitate leakage. Now we need a lot more data about irritants, but the best data relates to caffeine and nicotine. And in a number of individuals, when they keep bladder charts and they document the impact of nicotine reduction, caffeine reduction, we also see a major reduction in frequency and in leakage episodes. Again, our data is limited. So we don't say to a patient, you've got to stop drinking coffee. But we do say the data indicate that in a number of individuals, caffeine can act as a bladder irritant and can increase urgency and frequency and leakage episodes. Would you be willing to do a one or two week trial of caffeine reduction? And I might say, geez, I don't know. You're really asking a lot. You mean no coffee in the morning? Well, what if you, how much coffee do you usually drink in the morning? At least two cups. What if you drank one cup of regular and one cup of decaf? 
And what if during the day you swapped out any caffeine intake for herbal teas or something like that? And just keep a record and see if it makes a difference. If it doesn't make a difference, you can go right back to your baseline intake. If it does make a difference, then it'll be up to you to decide what to do with that information. Other things that have been listed and identified as irritants but don't have nearly so much data for support, aspartame, so your artificial sweeteners, citrus beverages and some people carbonated beverages, and then, especially in children, topical agents such as bubble bath. So management, just what we said, talk to them about it. Explain to them the data that we have available. See what their willingness is to do a trial to see what happens if they do reduce intake. One other thing is talk to your patients about not bolus drinking. So you know how a lot of times we were so intent on getting our water intake in for the day that we'll take a 12 ounce bottle and just knock it back. But if you are having problems with bladder control, if you're already having problems with urinary incontinence, that is not a good idea because you're going to overwhelm your bladder with high volume urine in a short period of time. So one thing you want to tell patients across the board, if they're having problems with bladder control, avoid bolus drinking, drink small amounts over time. Now we're to L, limited mobility, and you can certainly see how limited mobility would be a contributing factor both to overactive bladder urge incontinence and to functional incontinence. So let's say I have overactive bladder urge incontinence. So what are the characteristics of this? I have frequency. I have sudden, intense urge to void. So when you talk to people who have overactive bladder and possibly episodes of virgin incontinence, they will tell you that they feel like if they don't get to the bathroom really, really quickly, they will leak. And they will frequently tell you about episodes when they didn't get there and they did leak. So now you take that syndrome of overactive bladder, what if you have diminished mobility? What if it's really hard for you to hurry because you walk with a walker or a cane? Then we're gonna have to come up with some strategies to compensate for your reduced mobility or you're gonna have recurrent episodes of incontinence. If you have severe immobility, it can actually cause functional incontinence. So how many of you have talked to patients who tell you, I know when I have to go, I put on the call light, but they don't get here in time. They don't get me the urinal in time, they don't get me the bedpan in time, they don't get me up in time, and so I'm always wetting myself and I hate it. But I don't know what else to do, I can't get up by myself and they just can't get here in time. So what can we do for those patients? We wanna do everything we can to make it easier for them to get to toileting facilities safely. Come down to the third bullet point first. I'm gonna do it out of order. Sometimes it's bringing the toilet to them. So can I get them a bedside commode? Can I make sure that we keep a urinal right at the bedside? for a male who has overactive bladder and who has severe immobility issues so that they don't have to get out of bed, they can just reach for the urinal. 
Can I make it easier for them to get from point A to point B safely? So I want to look at their footwear. I want to make sure that they have any ambulatory aids they need. I want to eliminate safety obstacles. So if I'm talking to someone about their home environment, I'm going to tell them you probably need to roll up your throw rugs because they're going to get in your way and they're going to cause problems. So let's create the safest, shortest, clearest path to the bathroom. Let's make it easy to get ready to toilet. So you don't want to be wearing pants with zippers and snaps and buttons. You want to, be, you want to wear something that's pull up, pull down. And then look at the fourth point. This can make a phenomenal difference. And a lot of times we don't think about it. But what I'm telling you is that when I have that urge to void, I can't get there in time. So let's disconnect toileting and urgency. Let's have you go to the toilet on schedule. Let's have you go before you have the urge to void. If it takes you 10 minutes to get from where you sit or where you're lying to the bathroom, and when you have acute urge to go, you, won't, you can only hang on for five minutes, then you're gonna have multiple leakage episodes. But what if instead you went to the bathroom every two hours on schedule before you had the urge to void? Then you could take 10 minutes to get to the bathroom and it wouldn't be a problem. What if we said to our patient, I'm gonna come and take you to the bathroom every two hours so that you, I'm not trying to rush in here at the last minute and you're not trying to hang on. So there's actually a lot we can do to compensate for reduced mobility. We just have to kind of think outside the box and figure out how to get the patient and the toilet together before urgency is an issue. Okay, so now we're to E, emotional issues. You know that depression can be linked to stress incontinence because low serotonin levels can contribute both to depression and to sphincter dysfunction. We also know that severe depression can contribute to functional incontinence because if I am so depressed that I really don't care what's going on, I might not even care whether I live or die, then I'm probably not gonna care whether I'm wet or dry and I'm probably not going to be motivated to get up and go to the bathroom. Then on the flip side, incontinence itself can contribute to depression by adversely affecting my self-concept and adversely affecting my lifestyle. So if I can't do the things I used to do, if I can't have sex with my partner because I'm worried about leakage, if I can't take trips with my friends because they're so tired of stopping multiple times, then incontinence may itself cause depression. So the take home message for us is to be aware of the link between depression and incontinence. We should always be asking our patients about the impact of incontinence on lifestyle. We should be asking them about depression if we pick up on indicators of depression, we want to do further screening using a validated screening tool like the geriatric depression score. And if we pick up on depression, we want to refer that patient for treatment. We don't want to ignore it. That's serious and significant.
What's the second T? The second T is for therapeutic medications. And as we discussed earlier, we have medications that contribute to incontinence and medications that contribute to voiding dysfunction and retention. So let's break it down a little bit more. If I have a patient who comes in with urge pattern incontinence, so urgency, frequency, nocturia, and leakage, what are the medications that I should be alert to? What might be contributing? Well, sedatives and hypnotics can cause a problem because they reduce my ability to recognize and respond appropriately to bladder filling. Diuretics can be a huge issue because they cause increased urine production and I'm dumping large amounts of urine into a bladder that's not going to tolerate that. Alcohol can do the same thing. What medications might contribute to stress incontinence? Well, alpha-adrenergic antagonists reduce sphincter tone in the proximal urethra and bladder necks. So they essentially funnel the urethra and tend to open the urethra. So if I have a patient with stress incontinence and I pick up that that patient is taking an alpha-adrenergic antagonist, maybe for blood pressure control, I definitely want to talk to the prescribing provider about switching them to a different antihypertensive. Also remember that ACE inhibitors cause a dry cough in many individuals, and that could be contributing to stress incontinence. What about voiding dysfunction and urinary retention? There are many, many medications that can contribute to voiding dysfunction and retention. Anything with an anticholinergic component and effect. And a lot of things fall into that category. Your antidepressants fall into that category. Antihistamines fall into that category. Some of your antiarrhythmics. Calcium channel blockers can also reduce bladder contractility, and that's a very widely used type of antihypertensive. And if you have patients who are getting alpha-adrenergic agonists for any reason, pseudoephedrine, or they're getting duloxetine for depression, that can increase urethral resistance. So I might say, since I started this medication, it seems like I have even more trouble emptying my bladder. You want to check that out, talk to the pharmacist, and talk to the prescribing provider. So you know and I know, sometimes that medication is absolutely critical to that patient's well-being. It's managing a cardiac issue, it's managing blood pressure. So maybe we can change it and maybe we can't. What's my role is to screen their medications work with the pharmacist to identify medications that might be contributing to their problem with incontinence or their problem with retention. Talk to the prescribing provider. Is this a medication that can be altered? Is there a substitute we could make that would not cause this problem with bladder function and with sphincter function? And if not, maybe I can make some suggestions to the patient so that this medication has less of an adverse effect on their continent status. For example, diuretics are a very commonly used medication. You think how many of our patients with bladder dysfunction, urinary incontinence are elderly? How many of them have coexisting cardiac disease. How many of them need that diuretic to keep them out of symptomatic heart failure? So 
I'm certainly not going to try to get them off the diuretic if that's what's keeping them out of symptomatic heart failure. But I can talk to the patient about the best time to take that. So you've heard this more than once. You'll keep hearing the same things that are very important over and over. I want to talk to the patient. Best time to take this is middle to late afternoon. And don't forget, if you really want it to help, you need to lie down with your legs up so we get all that fluid out of your legs, processing through your kidneys, so you can pee it out now and not have to get up during the night. E is for endocrine disorders. And you know that common endocrine disorders can contribute to urge incontinence. Certainly, diabetes with hyperglycemia, what happens when our sugar levels go up? We get thirsty. We drink a lot more water. And then what happens? We make a lot more urine. And then a lot of urine gets dumped into our bladder in a very short period of time. So you can see how that's going to contribute to frequency, urgency, and possibly leakage. Same thing happens with diabetes insipidus. It's not nearly as common a disorder, but it has the same effect. We don't have that many people with hypercalcemia, but hypercalcemia can make the bladder more contractile, more irritable. It also contributes to constipation, which interferes with bladder emptying and bladder filling and increases bladder irritability. So it's the same thing we keep saying. We're going to assess for any endocrine disorders, if they have any. We're going to assess the level of management, and then we're going to work with the primary provider and the patient to assure optimal management. And sometimes patients don't realize that, hey, my diabetes could actually be contributing to my bladder problem as well as everything else. Sometimes patients are more concerned about being wet than they are about all the potential complications of diabetes down the road. So sometimes that's the thing that motivates them to get back on their program and get their sugar levels back under control. And then finally, D for delirium. Delirium contributes to functional incontinence for very obvious reasons. If I'm confused, if I don't know where I am, if I don't know what's going on, then my cortex is not functioning normally, is not processing information correctly. So even though signals come to the cortex about bladder filling, the cortex does not initiate appropriate action. The patient is unable to recognize and respond to bladder filling appropriately. Now there's a lot of confusion about dementia and delirium. So remember that dementia is irreversible Delirium is reversible. But you can have dementia and have a superimposed delirium. So let's say I have a patient who has Alzheimer's. He's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But we have him on a management program that's working. We're toileting him every two hours. Everything's going well. But now he develops a urinary tract infection, and he has a superimposed delirium. So now he's acutely confused again. What's going to happen to his continent status? Well, he's going to have be right back to multiple episodes of leakage because now the bladder's more irritable, he cannot process the information, he can't participate appropriately in a toileting program. 
So one of the first things we always screen for in our elderly patients who are presenting with alteration in mental status, is there any kind of infection? Urinary tract infections, most common upper respiratory infections can also contribute to delirium. So if there has been any recent change in mental status and cognitive function, we want to screen for infection, we want to screen for electrolyte imbalance, we want to relook at medications, we want to see if anything has changed in this patient's environment. Have they been hospitalized? Has their place of residence changed? We're going to focus on getting them back to baseline, correcting this reversible issue, getting them back to baseline. Until we get them back to baseline, we're probably going to need to use absorptive products. They may or may not be able to participate in a toileting program. So priority number one, march through toileted and correct your reversible factors. Now that usually takes several weeks, maybe longer. But once you've corrected all the reversible factors, you want to reassess your patient to determine are they still having problems with incontinence or with retention. By definition, incontinence that persists after reversible factors have been corrected and that's been present for at least six months, that is classified as chronic incontinence. So if I've if I have corrected all reversible factors, if they're still incontinent, now I have to go back, look at my history, look at my physical exam, look at the bladder chart that they kept after reversible factors were corrected to determine what kind of incontinence are we dealing with. And then I want to work with the patient and the caregiver to develop an appropriate management plan that's consistent with their goals. Now sometimes you have patients with kind of a mixed bag of problems. So let's say that I have some degree of overactive bladder, but I also have a very weak detrusor that doesn't empty well. So I have a combination of retention and that whole problem with urgency, frequency, and leakage. Any problem that is potentially hostile to the kidneys takes priority. So if I have a problem with um, storage, I'm leaking, but I also have a problem with emptying, I've got to address the problem with emptying first because failure to empty effectively can cause back pressure on the kidneys. And interestingly, if I correct the problem with emptying, I automatically improve your ability to stretch and store. Across the board, if you look at options for management and you think, oh, there's behavioral therapies and there's medications and a few people need surgery, the recommended first line is behavioral. What can we do in terms of lifestyle modifications? What can we teach the patient? Medications are next and surgery, of course, is last. So now, uh, want to talk about absorptive products because absorptive products are widely used in incontinence management. They can be appropriate for patients with stress incontinence, patients with urge incontinence, patients with functional incontinence, patients in retention if they also have problems with leakage, 
and patients with neurogenic bladder. So you can see they cut across all the different types of incontinence. You do, ne you do not ever want to use absorptive products as a substitute for definitive therapy. There are two major indications for use of absorptive products. Many times you'll use these products as adjunctive therapy while you're treating the underlying condition. So let's say I come in, I have classic overactive bladder, I have urgency, I have frequency, sometimes I leak on the way to the bathroom. So you're gonna put a whole behavioral therapy program into place. You may or might, may not use medications. But I'm saying to you, well, what am I gonna do right now? Because I'm soaking my clothes, I'm wetting the floor, I'm wetting the furniture. Well, I can put you in absorptive products while I work on the underlying problem. What if you have stress incontinence and you're afraid to go to the gym because you're afraid that you'll have leakage when you do jumping jacks or when you do, you know, stair steps? Then I can put you in an absorptive pad to protect you until we get your pelvic floor muscles re-educated, re-strengthened to a point where it will prevent incontinent episodes. So very, very often you will use absorptive products as adjunctive therapy during the course of treatment. And you'll tell them up front, this isn't forever, this is for right now. But there are other patients where you will use absorptive products long term. What if I have functional incontinence because I have pretty advanced dementia? And sometimes I can participate in a toileting program and sometimes not okay, then you're probably gonna need absorptive products long-term. We actually went through kind of a phase where we acted as if absorptive products weren't really continence care. We acted like if you were putting somebody in absorptive products, you were kind of failing the patient. You don't wanna think like that. Absorptive products can make a huge difference in quality of life. I once got to participate in a panel or listen to a panel discussion among people in the workforce who had intractable urinary incontinence. And it was very eye-opening to hear their discussion of absorptive products and the difference that absorptive products had made in their quality of life. And across the board, they said, I would not be able to go to work. I would not be able to go out to social events. I would not have the quality of life I have if I didn't have good quality absorptive products. And it would have been so helpful to me if I had had a nurse who could counsel me and help me select the appropriate product. So I want you to see absorptive products as one option in your armamentarium of things that make a difference for people with urinary incontinence. So here are things to consider when you're selecting absorptive products. Obviously, the volume of leakage. So some products are designed to manage low volume leakage. Other products are designed to manage high volume leakage. Some of your patients will have a combination of urinary and fecal incontinence. And obviously, you're gonna need a different kind of product for that patient than you would need for somebody who's leaking small amounts with activity. 
ambulatory status can make a difference because as you know, we now have products that are pull-ups and we have products that are side fastened and we have products that fit into someone's underwear and strip to their underwear or they can be used in conjunction with mesh panties. So ambulatory status makes a difference. We tend to lean toward pull-up products for people who are ambulatory. But I talked to one patient and he said, even though I'm ambulatory, I much prefer products with the side tabs. I'm like, really, why? And he said, because I can get a snugger fit. I can contour them around the leg and contour them at my waist so that I get a snug fit around um, the leg and I don't worry about leakage. I'm like, okay. I just learned something from you. I hadn't thought about that. So you literally are working with your patient and the caregiver to come up with the best product for this individual. What patients tell us matters the most to them. Does it effectively prevent leakage? If it doesn't do that, we've got to go back to the drawing board. They want to make sure that there's odor control properties and that that's not something they have to worry about. And especially people who are going out, they're working, they're going to social events, they're going to be very concerned about fit and profile. They want it to be low profile under their clothing. And fortunately today, in 2019, we have so many more options for our patients. So I'm gonna talk about absorptive products in major categories. Um, many products, come as absorptive pads with an adhesive strip. And these are designed for use with regular underwear. These are the things you see on the shelves in your local pharmacies and grocery stores and things like Walmart. So there's a lot of things out there. They're indicated primarily for your ambulatory patients who have low volume leakage. So females who have stress incontinence men who have post-prostatectomy stress incontinence. Now, let's talk about female products and male products a little bit differently. Female pads are, are available in various lengths, designs, and absorbencies, and a lot of times it'll be labeled. Um, light absorbency, heavy absorbency, etc. So people can pick and choose based on what they need. To some extent, it will always be trial and error. So how do you know whether you need this shorter pad or a longer pad? You're probably not gonna know until you try one and then you realize this isn't giving me enough coverage, I need a longer pad. Or this one's too long and it's bunching up, I want a shorter pad. What about menstrual products? A lot of women use menstrual products and that's okay, but they're not going to hold nearly as much. They're not gonna provide as much protection as products that are designed specifically for urine management. Now, for a long time, we didn't have much in the way of protection, over-the-counter protection for men. For light leakage, there's two major categories of products for men. One product is known as a drip collector, and it literally fits right over the penis and then strips to the underwear. The problem is that those products are only available through durable medical suppliers, so you can't get them at your local pharmacy or drugstore or Walmart. But you can get male guards. So if you look at the bottom slide, 
for the back bottom picture. That is the male guard. And you can see that it's gathered so that it forms a cup around the penis, so it's much more appropriate for a male than like a female pad. And those are available over the counter. So you want to be aware of that. You want to be able to tell your patients that because there's a lot of men out there dealing with post-prostatectomy stress incontinence. Your next category are your pant and pad absorptive systems. And these come in different um, styles. Some of them are reusable. Most of them are disposable. Some of them have a pretty large pad and it's secured with a mesh brief. Some of them have a waterproof central area and inside there's a pocket and you can just tuck an absorptive pad into um, the pocket. Across the board, these systems are designed for ambulatory patients who have light to moderate levels of leakage. So these are perfect for both men and women who have urge incontinence, overactive bladder urge incontinence, because in general, they have moderate amounts of urine. Typically, they leak three to four ounces, maybe five. They don't usually have high volume, because that's the problem. Their bladder's overactive and it's contracting at low volumes. The other advantage of pant and pad absorptive systems is they don't interfere with toileting. They're pull up, pull down. And you can get them in higher level absorbencies for nighttime use. So some people use one product during the day and another product at night. We've already said these are also available in, in reusable forms, but across the board, reusable products do not provide the same level of absorption, are not as well accepted by patients, and do not provide the same level of skin protection. So if possible, if your patient can access disposable products, if there's insurance coverage for disposable products, or if they can afford the out-of-pocket cost, they're probably going to get better results and better satisfaction from your disposables than from your reusables. Whatever they're using, you want to teach them change the pad out when it's wet and use these products in conjunction with a skincare program. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And then the highest level absorbency, highest level protection comes from adult briefs, which are also known as adult diapers. Of course, we try to avoid the term diapers because of the connotation, so that's why we try to use the term disposable adult briefs or reusable adult briefs or whatever. But these are the products that are best for patients with high volume leakage. Some of your patients with functional incontinence have high volume leakage. Also generally the best option for patients who have both urinary and fecal incontinence. These come in two styles. They come in the pull-ups and then they come with these um, side tab openings. Usually the pull-ups are better for ambulatory patients and the side tab openings are usually better for bed-bound patients. But again, you have to listen to your patient, listen to the caregiver, because there are exceptions. Now, when we get into talking about prevention and management of incontinence-associated dermatitis, we're going to talk about the importance of avoiding occlusion. So if I get 
an adult brief and it has a plastic outer layer, as soon as I close it up around the patient, what have I done? I've created an occlusive environment. I'm trapping heat, I'm trapping moisture. And as you know, hot, wet skin is quite vulnerable, whereas cool, dry skin is very resistant. So we're trying to avoid occlusion, and the manufacturers understand this, and they're creating more and more products that have breathable zones to minimize the occlusive effects. See if I can make this click and change. Okay, so the last thing we're gonna talk about in this class is prevention and management of incontinence-associated dermatitis. And of course, that's always a concern anytime you're managing a patient with either urinary or fecal incontinence or both. So if you went through the wound course, you already know a lot about the etiologic factors for incontinence-associated dermatitis, but we're gonna go over them again here. So number one, the effects of maceration. When you overhydrate the skin, when the skin's exposed to moisture for prolonged periods of time, then you get that wet, macerated, waterlogged skin. What happens when the skin is overhydrated is that it becomes extremely vulnerable to friction because now instead of gliding across the bed, gliding across any surface, it drags. So now you're much higher risk for friction damage, for mechanical trauma. In addition, when you have overhydrated skin, now the skin cells are stretched because they're overhydrated and that makes them much more vulnerable to penetration by bacteria or by irritants. So maceration is considered the setup guy for skin damage. We're always trying to keep the skin cool and dry. We're always trying to prevent maceration. The second thing that can happen is you can get microbial proliferation. So you think about what's sitting on the skin. You've got urine sitting on the skin. You might have stool sitting on the skin. So anytime that you have wet skin and urine, wet skin and stool, or a combination of all three, you get proliferation of bacteria, easy penetration through that macerated skin. In addition, some of the bacteria can split urea and change the skin pH to alkaline. We all know that alkaline skin is much more vulnerable as opposed to skin with an acidic pH. The third thing that happens when you have a patient with incontinence is that skin is gonna be exposed to repetitive cleansing. And every time I clean that patient up, I'm stripping away skin oils, and the skin oils protect the skin by filling the gaps between skin cells. So repetitive cleansing strips out a protective component of the skin, compromises the skin's barrier function, leaves it much more vulnerable. Repetitive cleansing also tends to bump the pH toward alkaline. And if they have fecal incontinence as well, on top of maceration and microbial proliferation and repetitive cleansing, you've got enzymes that are designed to digest steak and can make very fast work of skin.
So multiple risk factors. So what, what are the goals of care? Well, first of all, I want to keep the skin clean so that I minimize the levels of pathogens and I minimize the uh, level of irritants on the skin. I want to keep the skin dry. I want to avoid that whole maceration that leaves the skin so vulnerable. I want to maintain the barrier function of the skin, which means I have to avoid stripping out all the skin oils, and I need to think about replacing them as part of my routine skincare program. And ultimately, my goal is prevent skin loss. How am I going to do that? What strategies will I use to keep the skin intact and healthy and prevent or minimize damage? Well, go back to absorptive products. In general, we try to limit the use of absorptive products. We try to use them as adjunctive therapy whenever possible. We try to minimize long-term use and limit that to patients where there are no other options. Whether I'm using absorptive products as adjunctive therapy for a short period of time or as primary management for a long period of time, I want to minimize occlusion because it's occlusion that really gets us into trouble. When you close that product around the patient and you trap heat and moisture, if I have a patient in the hospital, in long-term care, I want to leave briefs open when the patient's in bed so that I interrupt that whole occlusion phenomenon. But now we have another option. This is very appropriate for people who are ambulatory and down the road is going to increase our options in the acute care setting as well and that is to use briefs that have a non-occlusive cover. So there's a lot of research ongoing right now looking at how can we create an outer layer that is impervious to moisture but permits air transfer. That's what we want. We want it to be waterproof, but we don't want it to trap everything. So we want air to move through, we want moisture vapor, to move through, but we don't want stool or urine to move through. So we have every day increasing options to use non-occlusive absorptive products. We wanna make sure we provide prompt cleansing after every incontinent episode, and we want our cleansing routines and our cleansing products to protect the skin instead of damaging the skin. So we want to use pH balanced, no rinse cleansers that help maintain that skin acidity. We want to use soft cloths or impregnated disposable wipes. So we do not want to use abrasive washcloths and we do not want to use soap and water. pH balanced, no rinse cleansers and soft cloths. And we want to routinely use moisture barrier products to protect the skin, to create a barrier between the skin and the urine, between the skin and the stool. Now there's lots of moisture barriers out there. As we go through these, you're gonna recognize them. These are all things you've used, but you wanna think of them in terms of their primary ingredient. So some of them are petrolatum based, like your A and D type ointments, your Vaseline type products. 
advantages. They're very easy to apply. They're easy to remove. They're transparent so you can assess the skin through the product. They're not as effective against liquid stool because they're so much easier to remove. And they transfer readily to underpads and briefs. So sometimes what you end up doing is protecting the underpad instead of protecting the skin. Now there's a way to get around that and that is to apply a thin layer rather than a thick layer. So when you're using a petrolatum based product, you have different rules than when you're using most of your zinc oxide based products. Petrolatum products are actually more effective when applied in a thin layer, not a thick layer. So you have to re-educate your staff. What about your zinc oxide based products? Well, one of the best things about them is that it's very difficult to get most of them off, so they give you very good protection against liquid stool. But that difficulty with removal can cause skin damage. So sometimes you see people scrubbing to get the zinc oxide off and then they're damaging the skin. So you want to do one of two things. You can either get a product where zinc oxide is mixed with dimethicone or mixed with petrolatum so that it's easier to apply and to remove. You want to teach people to use their perineal cleansers to remove zinc oxide. It makes it so much easier. And you should be aware that zinc oxide also comes in a touchless spray that has micronized zinc, much easier to apply, gives you a thin layer that you can see through, and doesn't cause trauma with removal. And then your third category is your dimethicone-based products. Very easy to apply and remove. They're non-occlusive and non-greasy. So from a patient perspective, they feel better. They don't, they're not heavy and they're not greasy. But even though they're great for protection against urine, they're not great for protection against stool. What if you have a patient who already has skin damage? They came in with skin damage. Or maybe you were doing your best to protect the skin, but then they acquired C. diff, and then they had just 24 hours of nonstop diarrhea, and now they have skin loss. Incontinence-associated dermatitis, and their skin looks like that. It hurts. It hurts them. It hurts you to even look at it. Now what are we going to do? Now most of your protective products, most of your moisture barrier products will not even stick to that and certainly won't provide the protection needed to promote healing. So one product that's out there is a hydrophilic hydrocolloid paste that will adhere to damaged skin. So if you happen to have, there's only a couple of them on the market, if you happen to have this, that would be perfect because it will provide protection and it will create the moist surface underneath that permits resurfacing. Well, what if you don't have that? All you have are your various zinc oxide-based products that won't stick to that very wet, damaged skin. Then you can take your ostomy powder and sprinkle the ostomy powder over the entire denudus surface that will create a gummy protective layer. And then you can spray over that with one of your alcohol-free liquid barrier films that you sometimes use for ostomy care, like your Skin Prep No Sting or your Cavalon or something comparable. And then you can put your zinc oxide ointment on because now you will have created a dry surface. 
So those are kind of the major approaches at this point in time. Use your hydrophilic paste or use your crusting technique with your powder and your spray and then apply the zinc oxide. You can also use a cyanoacrylate liquid dressing to the denuded areas. So there's only two on the market, so I'm gonna list both of them. Marathon by Medline or your Cavalon Advanced Skin Care by 3M. And so what you end up doing is literally painting a plastic film over these very denuded areas. And even though you can't see it, that dressing is there and it's protecting the area. Now the advantage is you can apply this every day or every other day instead of applying it after every incontinent episode. One of the disadvantages is that you cannot use any emollient-based product. You can't use anything with dimethicone or petrolatum or zinc because it will break down the cyanoacrylate. Remember in this setting, you could also use your touchless zinc oxide spray because it will adhere to damaged skin, but it's not gonna give you the level of protection because it's intended for prevention, not management. What if they have yeast dermatitis? And this is classic yeast dermatitis where you've got a solid rash in the center and then you've got your distinct border lesions. So here you can either use a moisture barrier product that includes an antifungal, most of them include myconazole, or you can first brush on an antifungal powder, spray it with your alcohol-free spray, and then put on a moisture barrier ointment. But the bottom line is you have to provide a moisture barrier and you also have to provide a topical antifungal. So, Summarizing this class, general management for the patient with urinary incontinence. Priority number one, remember toileted. Screen for, identify and correct all of your reversible factors. Priority number two, if the incontinence persists past the point at which reversible factors have been corrected, now you've got to use all of your history data, your physical data, your bladder chart, to determine what kind of incontinence they have and to develop a management plan in conjunction with the patient and caregiver. Priority number three, remember that absorbent products can be very helpful, either as short-term adjunctive therapy or for some patients as long-term primary management. And you wanna help them select the best product. You at least want to provide them with general guidance. And finally, if they are using absorbent products, you want to make sure that they're instructed in appropriate skin care for prevention of IAD. And that's it for this one. Thank you.